Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Well, good morning and welcome to the Mike Smith Show. I'm Scott Schantz filling in as I have been all week. Yesterday, just after 1030, we were talking about a story out of Port Coquitlam. We spoke with a mother whose daughter had been the victim of some youth violence and they're worried. She's part of a group of mothers that are worried that youth violence is escalating in Port Coquitlam. Her name is Jennifer Jade. Let's hear a little bit of that interview with her right now. It happened to my daughter in June, who is 12 years old. And she was savagely gang beaten by three girls and it was recorded and put on social media. So they stomped her and kicked her in the head and face repeatedly. And one wrong kick to her temple, I could be on your show as a bereaved mother. She honestly could have been killed. It was horrifying to watch. And this video and many others like it are passed around and shared in a way that wasn't possible before social media. For her attack, I went on to post on Tri-City Mom Group. And I was met with a tidal wave of support and upwards of 50 parents reached out to me to share stories of their own children who'd been impacted by kid-on-kid violence in our community. So that was the woman that I spoke to yesterday. Lots of people fed back, both through phone call and email and text. Here's Ryan. He called in to to weigh in on the topic. So there needs to be something else that's done. It can't just be up to the school. I think there's a, a level of responsibility that needs to be put on parents. What are these kids doing? Why are they out? without any supervision. And another person, Jen, in Coquitlam, she weighed in as well. I actually feel as though it's getting worse. Hmm. Um, this is but one problem. Um, we, we feel like we have to keep an umbrella over kids. Here it seems to be so widespread. So just a sample of kind of the feedback that came in from that segment. And here now to sort of weigh in on the issue and sort of talk to us about what is being done and how we're going to get ahead of this, or at least try to get ahead of this, is Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West. Thanks so much for being here, Mayor West. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. So first, I just want to give you an opportunity to sort of respond to this idea that uh, youth violence is kind of getting worse or has become more of a problem in Port Coquitlam. What would you say to that? Well, I think any incident of youth violence is unacceptable. Um, The stats will tell you that uh, Port Coquitlam is an incredibly safe community, uh, but stats don't provide any comfort to a, a parent who's having to comfort their child after an incident like this. So there's no doubt uh, whether it's in our city or in cities right across Metro Vancouver, uh, these things happen and they need to be addressed. And I I think one of the biggest issues as I've delved into this, and, you know, I, I wear two hats when I'm doing this. I wear the hat of being the mayor of my city. I also wear a hat of being a parent, to two young boys um, and being incredibly concerned about their well-being and their safety in our community and, and throughout Metro Vancouver. One of the big things that seems to be at the heart of this is that we have, uh, in many instances, a very small group of people who are engaged in this type of behavior who are known to police but who do not face any consequences for their actions. And I think that is such an appalling failure of the criminal justice system that it it seems to be incredibly reticent to hold uh, people accountable for their actions. And yes, I understand 
in many cases, they're young people as well. But that's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. That doesn't mean that because you're young, you can do whatever you want and you can be violent and hurt people and there's no consequences. Um, and from my understanding and discussions with our local police uh, and, and others who are concerned about this issue, that is one of the major failings of all of this. The yeah. police identify them, they arrest them, recommend charges, um, and it goes nowhere, or it's a slap on the wrist. Yeah, exactly. And we actually spoke with someone yesterday who who called in and mentioned that uh, he had been through this. His son had been bullied. They knew exactly who it was. They spoke to RCMP about it, and the RCMP actually recommended not pressing charges and sort of just hoping that the situation would would kind of go away. So what what is the the police and the city's role in in working to prevent this? Do we like you mentioned um, the need for perhaps a, a stronger consequences or more serious consequences even for youth? Uh, but even in preventing this, is it more policing? Is it um, more involvement from from the school? More involvement from parents? What do we see as a potential you know helper or solution here? Well, I I think it's an all-of-the-above response. So in terms of what the municipality is responsible for, we increase uh, police resources. We provide them the tools that they need to be able to be in our community and be present and be patrolling, particularly in areas where this activity is concentrated. And so that's something that we do. Uh, We operate in our city a very robust program of uh, youth programs and community engagement through our recreation department. We've taken steps in the last number of years to expand those, to, to reduce any financial barrier to participation in those, you know, doing all of the stuff around uh, prevention. Uh, I, I can't speak to what the schools are doing. Um, I would hope that they are being attentive to this. And then, yes, I think as parents, and again, I say this as a parent, we also have a responsibility Uh, We have a responsibility to know where our children are, to know what they're up to, to know who they're hanging out with. And I get that sometimes that that can be hard for a parent, but it is our first and foremost job before anything else uh, is the well-being uh, of our child and making sure that, you know, they're not going down the bad path. And when you can see that you're going, a child, maybe your child's going down a wrong path, there's got to be support and resources uh, to help that parent get that kid back on track. Uh, and so there's a lot there that needs to be attended to. Uh, from my role as the mayor, there's only so many uh, things that we have the responsibility for, but I'm certainly committed to make sure that uh, the city is doing its part and then some. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I'm a parent as well. And I I was saying a lot yesterday that there is uh, nothing scarier than the idea of something like this happening to your children. It's it's absolutely heartbreaking, especially when it happens, you know, in a community that you consider home. And I think for so many people, that's why this feels so, so invasive and so bothersome is that it's like this. These are the places where we socialize and where we we build our life and we build community and stuff. And so for something like this to happen, it feels like such a violent. So, uh, first of all, thank you, Mayor West, uh, for your concern and for your effort on this. And also, thank you for your time this morning. I really appreciate you weighing in. Thank you very much for having me. appreciate it. 
One of the things that just keeps making news and is going to continue to make news, quite frankly, is housing. Housing costs, housing availability, where people live, how they live. How are we making this work in a part of the world, and I'm speaking about our city and our province and also our country in general, where it's just so unaffordable. Owning a house is so ridiculously unaffordable. How do you make ends meet? And all of that starts with housing. Uh, One of the options that a lot of people are starting to entertain is living at home staying at home or moving back home. And what I mean by that is adults moving back home to the homes that they grew up in or staying at homes where they grew up with their parents. As an adult, I'm 41. I can't conceive of this, even though my parents think it would be a wonderful idea. Would it be? I'm not so sure, but I mean, I would save so much money. Uh, here now to comment is Paul Kershaw. He's a UBC professor and founder of Generation Squeeze. Talks a lot about how uh, these sort of things affect our world and like, yeah, this generation that I'm a part of, we're being squeezed out of the housing market. Hi, Paul. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Are you surprised at all by this to hear that people are moving back home and considering moving back home? No, and, and this isn't new. I mean, it's just reaching perhaps even higher higher rates of return. Uh, but the idea of a young adults boomeranging back to their parents' home or you know not leaving in the first place has been in our province for some time because we're the province that first lost control over home prices. Um, I mean, here's the story for the typical young person. They go to school longer to land uh, jobs that pay less. They face average home prices that are up and up and up. It locks them out of ownership. Increasingly, they're squeezed out of affordable rent. They're inheriting larger government debts and more and more pollution in our soil, ocean, freshwater, and atmosphere. This just constrains the way in which hard work pays off for them. And when hard work doesn't pay off for an entire generation of people, as it didn't for past generations, you're going to see major adaptations and being you know, quote unquote, trapped at home or in your parents' basement is increasingly an adaptation strategy. Yeah, I think you're right. And I also, I see that like, you know, lots of people are not marrying or starting a family as early, you know, like I used to, people used to start a family like in their twenties. Now I feel like that's, pro, I'm, this is anecdotal. I don't have the research in front of me, but I, I feel like a lot of more of my friends are starting to think about that in their thirties and e- even in some cases into their forties. So staying at home and living in your parents' basement, if you're single or don't have have a family, like that's not such a big deal. And I know in my case, because my parents bought our home, you know, 50 years ago or however many years it is, it's a great home. It's like a big home that can easily house all of us. And of course, there are some boundaries conversations that need to go along with that. You know, we'll get to that in a sec. But there are other places in the world that live like this, right? Where kids do stay at home. And that that one home is sort of like the family home through the generations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the norm, the quote-unquote norm that uh, occurred in Canada after the, the Second World War, where you had sort of many nuclear families living on their own, is, is different than you find in some other cultural contexts around the globe. Um, and so I think we can take inspiration as we, <clears throat> we search for solutions. But we need to recognize at this moment there's just a massive power imbalance between the intergenerational home you're describing in, in our city, our province, and across the country, because you know, the quote-unquote bank of mom and dad has become remarkably affluent as a result of surging home values, whereas, and, you know, whereas for their kids and grandchildren, the consequence of that is that their hard work doesn't pay off like it used to. And then it creates this dynamic where an older demographic, you know, risks infantilizing their kids and grandchildren, saying, oh, you're not working hard enough, this is your fault. And you kind of personalize it and individualize the problem which then will give rise to higher levels of mental ill health and anxiety amongst younger demographics. 
demographics, all the while we ignore the systemic issues. These are systemic problems that are causing hard work to not pay off. It has very little to do with what young people are doing and, in fact, has much more to do with their treatment from older generations as a result of previous policy decisions. Yeah, and I mean, I will say, because I have this conversation in my family a lot, you know, and I've said a couple times that my dad has offered, he's like, come on, move on home, bring the kids, whatever, you know. Um, I think he is really aware of how different it is for my generation versus his generation. I think he's aware of that. But one of the things that I know a lot of people sort of in my my situation we kind of talk about it's like well there is an inheritance coming and we've heard these statistics that a lot of people are kind of banking on an inheritance to get them into the market or to give them that leg up that they that they need to get into the market and this is this kind of just delaying that it's like well move into this home and eventually this home is just going to become yours when you know ultimately aging parents move into a retirement home or you know come to the end of their life or whatever so is this idea of like moving home is it just like sort of like a pre-inheritance extension of that is there a possibility to see it that way i mean i do agree with you there certainly are circumstances where we look at it as this sort of like, oh, you guys aren't working hard enough and why can't you – we figured it out. Why can't you just figure it out? I definitely think that exists. But I also think there are some cases where it's like, no, like we're we're affluent and, and we're willing to share and, and this is all going to be yours anyway. Yeah, I think that um, as we've – as a society you know, achieved this great success of people living longer, uh, one of the things it's done is it sort of disrupted the timing of inheritances. So, you know, typically people are living to their mid-80s. That means the next generation is going to inherit in their mid-50s. They're, by that point, grandchildren are in their mid, you know, mid-20s, if not a bit older. And what we really need is for the generation raising young kids to be, um, you know, as financially secure as they can be, because if you're raising young kids in in a financially stressed place, you set the kids up to be, you know, more likely to fail, end up in jail or wind up sick when we could have prevented it. So we do need to be making adaptations about intergenerational transfers of wealth within families. And I think that the lovely story you just told about your father, you know, recognizing how hard work is, you know, not paying off like it used to and, and saying, hey, we are doing, you know, relatively well, we can help. That's beautiful. It's exactly the kind of intergenerational love and solidarity we typically have in many families. What we don't have is that intergenerational solidarity and love in the world of politics. Right. And that's the problem. We don't even have our governments looking at how they break down their spending investment by age. They're missing how so much of our, our, you know, our deficits right now that we're running when we're not in a recession come as a result of decisions that are disproportionately allocating investments later in the life course to your parents' generation who we love. But that's not the generation that's disproportionately struggling financially. Right. And so we need to be saying politics like you need a task force on generational fairness. We need one provincially. We need one federally. And we need our budgets to start breaking down how we're investing as a society by age so that we can shine a light on these political intergenerational tensions that are not consistent with the solidarity we have in our family. Yeah, generational fairness is a great term. I'm going to adopt that. One other thing that I think we're starting to see, and I'll tell you, I'm, you know, I'm speaking from my own experience here. I've said often on the air that like, I'm a homeowner, like I have a mortgage. It's not like we own our home outright, but the way that we bought it is with my in-laws. So instead of like us moving in with them, you know, they had sort of sold and moved around a little bit. And when we were talking about buying a house, it was like, well, why don't we go in together? We'll like try to separate, you know, sort of an area 
area of the house. Like it's not a suite for tax purposes, but like they have a suite, you know, and, <laughs> and we have, they have a third of the house and we have two thirds of the house and that it feels really great. It's like, Hey, this is sort of the same idea, but it sort of removes some of that infantilism that you were mentioning because like I'm a home, I'm the homeowner. They're, they're living there with us. They help, they have less space because they need less space. Cause I have kids. What about that? Are you seeing things like that where families are kind of, you know, co-housing? Yeah, I think we, uh, you know, it's hard to get specific data on these things, but, you know, the anecdotal data, the stories that we hear in our communities around the water cooler signal that that, that adaptation has been on the rise as well. Often, sometimes, though, we'll, we'll hear people like, I don't necessarily want to live with you, but as we, you know, I'll give you some of the equity I've gained in my home as a result of searching home values, and so I'll help you out with a condo. So we do have that kind of, again, it's another version of the bank home mom and dad, and, and I like how your your family experiences of this is is really one that's paying attention to like how do we, you know, even the power dynamics, how do we, you know, set the younger demographic not to be infantilized, to be thinking about growing their own wealth. One of the challenges though that we're going to face is that within generations, within younger generations, when people don't have access to that that older demographic who might have some additional, you know, housing equity to be able to support them in adapting to this really hard housing system, then they get locked out further still. And so we have intergenerational inequalities. And then we have within young, younger generations, inequalities arising, depending on, do you have a connection to someone who's right. housed or not? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It certainly feels like a big problem. And I like the idea of getting creative with our solutions, but I also agree with you absolutely that we need to, you know, find some generational fairness in terms of our policy. It's Paul Kershaw. He is UBC professor and founder of Generation Squeeze. Thanks so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a great day. We talked about bears yesterday, and a lot of people were very passionate about bears. And this, this is a bit of a different topic. Yesterday, we were talking about who should be responsible for the cost of, you know, dealing with bears for if they get attracted to your garbage, and then they have to, you know, be taken care of, put down, removed from your property. Who should have to pay for that? Probably you, if it's your fault that the bear is there. But today, we're talking about what we should do about grizzly bears. Should we be able to hunt them? Is that something that uh, you see as like maybe a solution to a grizzly bear problem? Is there a grizzly bear problem? Or is this like we're wasting our time even talking about this? And here now to weigh in is Mario Canseco, president of Research Co. Should we be hunting grizzly bears, Mario? Well, when we ask British Columbians about this, Scott, they're happy with the status quo. You know, we have a ban on the hunting of grizzly bears that has been in place since December 2017. When we asked them uh, last month, um, we have 70% who disagree with the idea of reinstating the trophy hunt, and the level of support is high across all regions. So we're really talking about a minority of residents who believe that this is something that the government should be considering right now. Yeah, that actually, that feels like in line with uh, my perception of how British Columbians sort of feel, you know? I don't, I mean, I know we have a black bear issue, but even with the issue that we have with black bears in the lower mainland, I don't feel like it's the type of thing that we should um, look to hunting as like, hey, this will sort of work to call the population here. I I don't see that. I think they're Beautiful, amazing, majestic creatures, and instead we should probably uh, learn and teach and accept uh, 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 
a different way of like living with them and sustainability for bears and, and that type of thing. But I guess there are people out there who like to hunt and I know you can get a tag to hunt a grizzly bear, not, excuse me, not a grizzly. You can get a tag to hunt a black bear, but it's going to remain that way that you won't be able to hunt grizzly bears. Yes, well, it's an interesting time right now because the government is seeking feedback on the rules that we have in place. Right now we have a ban that is part of the BC Wildlife Act. It's not legislated per se in that sense because it's a regulatory framework. And they're gathering feedback from residents on this particular issue. Uh, And what's interesting to me in this sense is that uh, it's not something that applies exclusively to grizzly bears. We look at the way people feel about sport hunting for wildcats, for black bears, and for wolves, and we also have more than 80% who believe that this isn't something that is appropriate right now uh, to be done in BC. And we've seen the numbers, particularly on issues related to animals changing over the past 10, 15 years. Our views on furring have become significantly harsher than they used to be, and we have the same situation with sport hunting. We used to be uh, an area of the country Uh, where the level of support for this practice was a little bit higher, certainly not in the majority, but now it's uh, definitely dropping below 20%, and this has been consistent for the past five, six years. Hmm. Yeah, that actually, it's interesting, because that part to me feels low, and I don't know if it's maybe just the people that I hang out with and stuff, but I know a lot of people who who do like to hunt and are outdoorsmen and very, you know, like respectful of the outdoors and appreciate where we live, but they, they see the sport in, in hunting and think that, you know, the way that we um, mandate hunting and, and licenses and tags and all of that type of stuff is, is really well governed. Why do you suppose it is that, um, that the number is, is diminishing in BC? Well, I think part of what we're seeing is a, a higher level of awareness um, when it comes to the issue of trophy hunting. Uh, social media has been particularly great mm, at yeah. because you can share images. Uh, we've seen very important people getting into a lot of trouble because of the way in which they feel about trophy hunting. We've had former NHL players. We've had the former King of Spain. uh, And all of those pictures get shared. And then it definitely becomes a situation where you establish that emotional connection with the public. And and obviously what we have here is a very strong emotional connection from British Columbians to all animals. It's not a situation where you're choosing one over the other. You're not saying, well, if we hunt a couple of grizzly bears, then maybe we can have an opportunity to hunt some more caribou or there are certain issues here that we need to deal with. Um, The message that we get from British Columbians is there is no species that is going to be superior to the other. And if we actually have the outcry against this ban, then the numbers would certainly be higher than they are right now. Yeah. And do you have any information as to how these numbers compare to the rest of the country? Because I know the attitude around this type of stuff differs as you move from province to province. I mean, we have a, a... distinct sort of wildlife culture here in BC with the mountains and rainforest, that type of thing. So I get that that would attract hunters, but the attitude towards it changes as you go from province to province, right? Yes. When we tracked the the views of Canadians on trophy hunting, there's a couple of places that really stand out. Uh, The first one is Alberta, where we tend to have a higher proportion of residents who have no problems with trophy hunting. (laughs) Shocking. Shocking that Alberta is the (laughs) number one spot. Yeah, but, you know, the numbers are also significantly high in Atlantic Canada. And we've seen all of the discussions related 
particularly to the ceiling issue and the coverage that that gets internationally. Uh, it seems to have died down recently, but we still have a lot of stories, particularly on the U.S. media related to the seal hunt. So it's an area of the country that is more likely to have no qualms about killing animals either for their fur or for sport. So it's a very interesting combination. We don't usually see Atlantic Canada and Alberta agreeing on anything, mm. <laughs> but this is the issue where they are uh, roughly the same when it comes to the way they, they view things. Now, I think that there's there's probably going to be a correlation here, but this is something that I find really interesting. I don't hunt, but I don't have a problem with it, but I really do like to shoot. I'm interested in firearms and sport shooting, like skeet shooting and target shooting. Yeah. Is there any information about, because naturally people who hunt would be fire, I would, you would think would be firearms people. Is there, is there a correlation there? What's, what, how does that relate? Well, it's a question that I haven't asked directly uh, over the past few years, um, but it's, it's an important aspect to look into because there might be opportunities for the sport hunter to sort of get it out of their system, if you will without having to kill an animal. I think it's an important issue that, that we can ask about because we've seen other issues where you see some of those changes uh, which are going to make it more sustainable. I mean, I, I think it's a great question to ask, and I'll, I'll be certain to write it down <laughs> so we can ask it when we have a chance because that is, that is also part of it. You know, there, there's ways to, to live what you want to live and to experience what you want to experience when it comes to shooting. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be killing a grizzly bear, and this is what most British Columbians tell us that they would not like to see happening. Right, yeah, and I think people who own firearms often justify it. It's like, oh, I own this because I really like to hunt, and I'm sort of the opposite. I'm like, oh, and I don't own a firearm, but I would I would plan to and love to at, at one point. Um, but I'm like, oh, I'm not really interested in the hunting part, but I am interested in the shooting part. And for other people, it's like, oh, no, the shooting part is just sort of a means to an end. It's the hunting part that they kind of really like. Some very interesting information there about sort of the habits and the perceptions of British Columbians. Mario Canseco, he is the president of Research Co. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing some information with us. My pleasure, Scott. Anytime. thinking about your retirement? Are you thinking about how you're going to afford it? What you're going to do? Maybe how to get creative because retirement is going to cost a lot of money. The reason I feel comfortable saying that is because living costs a lot of money and I don't anticipate it getting any better in the future. And uh, I think about that. It's like, man, I'm saving a little bit, but like, I don't feel like it's going to be enough. Here now to help us unpack some of the creative ways that people are looking at retiring is Rubina Ahmed Hawk. She is a personal financial expert and host of For What it's worth on global Saturdays at 9 a.m. and Sundays at 5 a.m. Hi, Rubina. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Am I in the same boat as a lot of people here? I just feel better if I know that there's other people who are in the same situation as me, that it's like, I, it's going to be so expensive and I have no idea how I'm going to afford it. You know, I think it's really good that you already understand that retirement's not cheap. I think that there's this misnomer out there that people think that once you retire, that your cost of living plummets. And that's not the case. Like I mean, it's going to get cases, more expensive, right? It can, especially if you want to have a good retirement, right? You want to travel. You may want to pick up some hobbies. And these things cost money. I mean, anyone can say if you're golfing every weekend or you know every Monday or something, that's going to be really expensive. Those are pretty stereotypical things that you know we think about when we think retirement. But even you know being able to um, host your family somewhere or spend you know travel across the world to see people that you haven't been able to spend time with, that costs money and. 
a lot of times people get into retirement thinking, oh, it's going to be a lot cheaper now. But really, I mean, some costs have fallen away if you've paid off your mortgage, if you've uh, saved some money for the future. Now you're you know reaping the benefits of that. But generally speaking, you know your your utilities are the same, your car payments are the same, all those things remain. Right, like gas is going up, groceries are going up, all of that type of stuff. And I think that a lot of people, like people in my situation at least, sort of look at you know whatever your main asset is, and in this case for a lot of people here, I'm sure it's their home. That's kind of also your retirement savings. You know, like it's like oh well, we don't have a million dollars saved, but by the time we retire, hopefully we'll have a million dollars in equity. We'll sell the house. We'll take that money, and that's what we'll use for retirement. That's everybody, right? Or am I way off? Uh, well, you know, this is the thing. A lot of people are really emotional about the home they raise their kids in. And this is something that I hear over and over again, where people are unable to sell that home, even though they know they could benefit from getting the equity out of it, because they have just way too much emotional attachment. Oh, this is where my I raised my kids. This is where, uh, you know, we had these big parties. This is where I have all these memories. How could I possibly sell this home? But from a financial point of view, selling that home uh, for, and for two reasons. One, it makes room for, you know, we know there's a housing crisis across the country, makes room for another family to move into, enjoy and make their own memories. And also frees up all that equity so that you can live in a place that's more reasonable if it's you and just your spouse. And all your costs then go down, your utility costs, your cost to clean, the time it takes right, to, yeah. to maintain that home. Everything gets a little bit cheaper. So uh, I think that that is one of the healthiest ways. The only thing I recommend is you do it earlier rather than later. And this is speaking from personal experience. My parents now close to their 80s now are thinking, oh, we'd like to sell. But they are now at a point where it would be difficult for them to get out of their home. They're just physically not able to do the kind of work they could have done maybe 20 years ago and establish a new community, which by now they would have had. Right. Yeah. Complicated thing for sure. And I mean, no, no question that like retirement is expensive and there's a lot of different ways to do it. And this is really interesting there. We're hearing now about like lots of couples and, and people and families and folks who are retiring, who are coming up with different ways to do it. Like, I don't know, going on a cruise ship and just living on the cruise ship because you've booked cruise after cruise, after cruise, after cruise, because you know what? That's actually cheaper than going into a retirement community. So I saw this story and as you know, I heard their story as well of why they chose this lifestyle. The fact that, you know, going on a cruise means everything's included. I did like one part of what they said, which was it keeps them young because they're not just surrounded by people who are retired and in that age bracket. They're meeting people from all walks of life, from all age groups and all different situations. And that in and of itself keeps their life more interesting. I do have to agree with that. I don't think that this is economically appropriate to uh, to uh, promote as a way to use your retirement. You have to have deep pockets. If you're going on 51 cruises in a row, this is not something that's going to be cheap. And I know that there was a lot of comparisons done. Well, how much is rent and how much is, you know, retirement homes. But if you're staying in a retirement home, the reason you're paying some of those higher rates is because you have access to medical care. You have access to people who can help you if you get into medical distress. That would not be the case if you're on a typical cruise, for example. Yeah. And also like living in a, in a retirement community, it feels like a home. Whereas being on a cruise ship, I would just feel like, I don't know, like a, like staff. It almost, 
feels like to me, you know, when you're when you're young, a, a teenager in your 20s, it's like, oh, I'm going to go work on a cruise ship and travel the world and live in this little teeny tiny quarters. And that's OK, because I'm having fun. Like I wanted to mm-hmm. do that in my 20s, not in my 60s and 70s, you know. But what are some of the other ways that people are getting creative about retirement? I know my mom, one of the things that she talks about all the time is moving to Mexico. A lot of people doing that, yes. right? Yeah, exactly. And a lot of, you know, Canada is a multicultural country. A lot of people will sell their home and move back to maybe where they were born, maybe where they first immigrated from, because they have a pension that can go further in the that country. Uh, they can sell their home, use the proceeds of that to buy a small property there. So that's one thing that people are doing, going back, maybe getting reconnected with their childhood roots. Uh, definitely downsizing and moving out of big cities. So as soon as you move out of Edmonton, life is going to get cheaper, right? Move out of any big city, you're going to have uh, the cost of buying that piece of real estate is going to be lower. Um, Things to bear in mind, though, when you do move out of big cities is that access to medical care is less. And so that is something that, you know, you really have to keep top of mind. That if I needed to see a doctor at the last minute or if I needed medical care, would I be able to get there quickly? Because as you get older, you have more and more, um, more and more medical issues that you may have to deal with. So those are two of the ways that I've heard uh, that people are getting creative with their retirement, um, pooling money with their kids. So they've got kids who are struggling to get into the market. And so they're saying, you know what, we'll sell our home and we will buy a home that can accommodate a multi-generation family. Right. So you're not putting your parents in the basement. This is speaking from the the couple's uh, point of view. Um, You're buying a home with the the thinking in mind that this home is for a multi-generational family. So everyone's got their space in the home. And of course, pooling your funds together means you can you can buy a bigger home. You can buy a more spacious uh, place. And you can also then, you know, do other things like maybe hire a cleaner once every couple of weeks. And because of the cost is spread amongst two families. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot more uh, possible to do. So some of the things that I think that are actually practical uh, for for Canadians to think about. Yeah, these are interesting things, and I love to hear about them. We were talking about you know cost of housing and barrier to entry before, and that a lot of adults are staying at home with their parents and not moving out until much, much, much later because of this exact reason. And I said I. You probably didn't hear it, but I did say that I live in one of those multi-generational homes. My wife and I bought a house with my my in-laws. And, you know, they, for now, they live in the basement, but they still work. And we have young kids, so we've kind of separated it off. But, like, we own that house together. And the idea is that, like, the kids are there and everybody, you know, it's like the shared space. And there's so, so, so many benefits to that. But, um, yeah, on the Mexico thing, like, my mom, some family friends bought a place in, in Bucerias. And they go down there for half the year. And they own, like, a little teeny tiny spot in Chilliwack where they go to come back. But like now that my mom goes down there to visit so often, the part of the reason that she's become so enamored with it is like she goes there to get all her dental work done because it's so mm-hmm. cheap. And I know like obviously bigger, more serious metal, medical conditions, you're right. The the healthcare trade-off is different. But it's just so wonderful to hear these these ideas that people have. Like we'll do a family thing or we'll we'll buy a piece of property together and we'll divide it up this way. You know, like we looked at a big piece of property it's like, oh, we could build build four houses on this and, you know, kind of get creative. That's part of the fun of this, right? Yeah, and I think it's getting back to the way that we used to live. I mean, I think that in the last 50 years especially, I mean, I'm try- not trying to be a historian or, you know, uh, <laughs> I'll be a sociologist, but we've really become used to being independent, living on our own, uh, you know, doing everything ourselves. Whereas for centuries, we lived in these communities right. where, you know, the village 
helped you. So, you know, when you need to have, a, you need to get away with your wife, your parents are there to help you out with childcare. You can't make it back in time. You've got someone there that, you know, that can collect them from school or wherever they're going to be. All those things just make for a better quality of life. But we know, need to sort of set our lives up where you bought a house purposely uh, with the idea in mind that you're going to live there and so will your parents. It's different if you buy a house and all of a sudden you ask someone to move in. That can then feel a little bit tight because you didn't think about them when you made that purchase. Yeah, and one of the things we talked about is how so much of the world still lives like that, yet here in Canada or maybe the West in general, we have this idea that it's like, no, I need the nuclear family, I need my own house and my own yard and all of that, when really that's not sustainable and that's not how most of the world lives. Rubina Ahmed Hawk, she's a personal finance expert and host of For What It's Worth on Global Saturdays at 9am and Sundays at 5am. Thanks so much for your insight this morning, we appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.